0: Hi, this is Paul. I want to continue talking about this Negative World Conference. I've found a number of the videos in it very stimulating, I'll say that. Uh, some of which I agree, some of which is brilliant, some of which I differ, um, differ with. Now, this third uh, presentation is by James Wood. And this I took particular interest in because James Wood wrote a piece in First Things, How I Evolved on Tim Keller and in in many ways tim keller sort of stands at the the center of this winsome winsome versus antithesis culture war i remember when i was just getting into this and i'd met bethel mcgrew online and she starts saying less than generous things about tim keller and that really surprised me because in the In the 20-teens, there was no one hotter than Tim Keller, even in a place like the CRC. Tim Keller was a person that many on the CRC left and many on the CRC right could mostly agree on. Some on the sort of the furthest edge of the CRC left didn't like Tim Keller because of his refusal to embrace women in all ecclesiastical offices. Tim Keller basically makes an argument for deaconesses. Um, in all fairness, if you really want to read about Tim Keller's position, you should read Kathy Keller's book, which I, I think i made some treatment on it in videos. Anyway, Kathy Keller is another very interesting person. Tim had met Kathy, I believe at Gordon Conwell Seminary. And so their, their take on women in office is very interesting. Oh, here the, here the ad comes up. Um. Then James Wood wrote this piece, How I Evolved on Tim Keller. And in many ways, this sort of really kind of broke open the winsome versus antithesis tension in this culture war. So when I saw him, this is actually where I first saw this series because he had posted it on Twitter. He has a Twitter account, but he keeps his Twitter account locked. He fairly recently took a position teaching at Redeemer. University in Ontario, Canada, which is uh, another one of these institutions within the Christian Reformed circulatory system. In my video about uh, the same-sex marriage crisis in the Christian Reformed Church, I really tried to limit my comments to the Christian Reformed Church south of the American-Canadian border because those are the dynamics that I know. I'm familiar with it. I've lived on both coasts. I've lived in the Midwest. I've had enough experience with the Canadian Christian Reformed Church and Canadian Christian Reformed ministers to know that their dynamics are very different from the dynamics in the United States. And so I was quite interested when he wrote this piece on first things, and then when he gave this talk at the negative world. So he begins by walking through some of the points of his talk. So let's start there.
1: Uh, This morning's talk is a little bit meatier than this afternoon's because I think that this area is where the model I'm critiquing confuses us the most. Many of our evangelical leaders are failing to provide clear guidance for our contemporary cultural moment and giving us extremely unclear mixed
0: messaging about politics. Now, Now what he says right here is important because Tim Keller in his rebuttal of some of this that I read in the first video of this series where he walks through sort of this incident that happened in Australia, clarity is a big deal. And and what they're asking of evangelical leaders now, again, back to my CRC video about same-sex marriage, part of what's happened in, in the Christian Reformed Church is that many, if not most, of the Models, elites, and leaders are no longer in the CRC, but are out there in the Christian community, in the United States, or in the world. And this is true for both sides.
1: Just This past week, for instance, two leading representatives of what I call the winsome third-way approach to culture published pieces telling Christians that pursuing political means is a mere selfish power grab that is antithetical to evangelism and undermines a more important
0: work of church renewal. Now, I found this to be interesting because, generally speaking, in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, the CRC folks differentiated themselves from, let's say, um, many, some American evangelicals and many American fundamentalists, at least in the early part of the 20th century, who basically said no to politics. One of the big changes that happened in the 1980s with the rise of the moral majority was that then, now suddenly, fundamentalists decided to get back into the political sphere and to act in the political sphere my impression of Reformed and Christian Reformed people is that they had always embraced the political sphere and didn't have any problem in entering the political sphere and acting as, it was sort of a, with Abraham, so Abraham Kuyper in many ways is one of the guiding lights of Neo-Calvinism in the Dutch Reformed sense. And what is interesting about Kuyper is that Kuyper is embraced by both sides of the culture war within the Christian Reformed Church. Kuyper became uh, better known in the broader American evangelical culture war thanks to someone like Chuck Colson. Now, there were a lot of tensions. So what sort of erupted in that is both sides would embrace Kuyper. Both sides would sort of embrace different voices from Kuyper. And the division in the Christian Reformed Church, for example, was most clearly seen in terms of not so much that both were pointing to Kuiper, but more that they would vote for different parties in the United States, and that was very interesting. You find you find people on the CRC right very much promoting Kuiper, people on the left promoting Kuiper. Kuiper's not easy to follow because Kuiper is the founder of some language in the Christian Reformed Church, including sphere sovereignty which would basically say, let the ministers practice in church, let the laity and the politicians practice in the world of politics. Kuiper, of course, excelled in both. He became prime minister of the Netherlands at one point, and he led a church secession movement, and he wrote theology, and he had a newspaper. Uh, Kuiper was quite a remarkable figure. Kuiper also both tried to maintain an idea of common grace and the antithesis. And so Kuiper is pointed to by both sides within the Christian Reformed Church, but they tend to point to him in different ways. In their view,
1: it is uh, using political power is just taking the Boromir option and seeking to impose Christian values on society. My friends, these are tired tropes and sloppy logic. False dilemmas abound in literature like this. Folly masquerades as virtue. I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'm sure you guys already know how you're voting. I'm not here to baptize a particular party, but I do want us to better understand the waters in which we swim and the limitations of the predominant framework delivered to us by our evangelical leaders, and to help us have better categories for cultural engagement and political action. That's my goal.
0: Let me start by. Okay, so his goal is better categories. And I think that's that's really where he's quite helpful in this, because I think if we want to talk about these tensions, we have to pay attention to the categories as we go through.
1: By quickly rehashing the original arguments that I've made that have gotten me into all this trouble, because maybe some of you haven't seen them. The Winsome model for cultural engagement, as I see it, seeks to minimize offense so as to maximize openness to the gospel message. There's a
0: lot of good in this. Now that is, again, I think very much sort of a positive world approach. And, and Keller actually speaks, has spoken a lot about this. So when his church was growing, his church grew quite a bit after 9-11. And then once he had established a large 5,000-member conservative Reformed congregation in Manhattan, yeah, everybody paid attention to that when he was invited onto uh, television stations to give Christian opinions, when he um, would be written about in major publications like the New York Times, yeah, everybody paid attention. An undercurrent beneath this is Aaron Wren's observation of the fall of WASPY political elites in America. And so, when you had a Presbyterian Church of America that's a conservative Reformed denomination that did not ordain women as elders or ministers, when you have someone like this on the public stage, it was a departure from much of what we had seen. Now, you could argue it's not a tremendous departure because, again, Barack Obama had Rick Warren on his platform for his first inaugural. So it it, it wasn't a complete exile. But again, back to Wren's thesis, the same-sex marriage debate When that got Giglio uninvited from Barack Obama's second inauguration, that was pretty much a sign that one political party was no longer going to platform people who were not publicly enthusiastic about same-sex marriage.
1: I, too, want people to know Jesus more than anything else. Evangelism, discipleship, and common life in the church are priorities for me. For instance, I was a campus missionary for many years. I helped plant churches down in Austin, Texas, and I just defended my dissertation, which focuses on the political significance of the church, which constitutes the central site for Christian social life. But I've gotten into this because I've
0: been... Now, I had some conversation with someone about, um, I think my uh, Rigney video triggered him a little bit, and one of, the th- one of the tensions that, one of the points that I made in talking more about that Rigney video was there are some real tensions in this conversation surrounding priorities. And these tensions are deep within Protestant life in a way that they aren't as deeply within Roman Catholic or perhaps Orthodox life. Because in some ways there's, there's sort of a there's sort of a tension set up between righteousness and goodness and a blessed life in this life and a blessed afterlife for example if someone lives their life in this dispensation in a ruinous matter. In my adult Sunday school, and I replayed it for this channel, I told a, a little a little parable, let's say, about a man who uh, lives a terrible life, treats his, the women his life poorly, is not responsible towards his children, um, is, is not a responsible citizen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Gets to 70 years old, gets the news from his doctor that he has cancer, has a little bit of anxiety about hell, goes to... Goes to church, uh, hears a message, wants to, you know, goes up front. Let's say it's a Baptist church, gets his get out of hell free card. Okay. Is that a good thing? How are we to evaluate the life he lived in this dispensation versus the value of sharing in another? Now, this gets at the tensions between. These, let's say, this dispensation and then the next, the the at this life and then the next. I'll use that language because if I use the word dispensation, some people will think about dispensational theology, and I'm not really talking about that, although that does come into play in American politics. So that tension is there, and especially in the Rigney video, there's a fair amount of muddiness there because people, as he said, given the argument, you know, in some ways, the worst things get... In America in terms of against natural theology, the more people are driven into real Christianity. In other words, during the Cold War, at the height of American religiosity, people would often make the comment that, in some ways, secularism and implicit, pervasive Christian values within the culture... Inoculates people against a fervent level of Christian discipleship by making them consumers of, let's say, only a vaccine level of dosage, so that, well, anybody who's a good person can be a Christian. I, over the holidays, I recently watched It's a Wonderful Life, and it's very interesting. George Bailey is in many ways a sort of a WASPy American elite figure. He is very self-giving. He never thinks about himself. This comes up again and again and again in *A Wonderful Life*. He never thinks about himself. He's he's making sure that the poor of the town can have affordable housing. He. But he isn't, so So then when sort of the bottom drops out and his uncle loses the money and he's about to be arrested and he's worried about his family, he's worried about all of this, then suddenly at this moment of terror, he prays in the bar and you hear him say, I'm not a praying man. Well, what does that mean? That sort of invokes the positive world that Wren is talking about where, generally speaking, everyone is assumed to be a Christian. This is Christendom. And church people are either better moral performers or a little bit prudish and too uptight, depending on who you ask. And part of what's going on in this conversation about the positive, neutral, and negative world, and the best way to stand with respect to it is a global evaluation, which is better? To have a Christendom society where the distinctions between, let's say, an active enthusiastic, remarkable Christian versus people who generally embrace Christian values, people live orderly lives, the, so, the so-called good people versus, let's say, the exceptional people. Which is better for the society? And what mechanisms in society should be used to set this up? You know this gets into let's let's talk about let's say the legalization of pot. But you got to think that's that's actually a pretty good example. So before the legalization of pot, because it was illegal, even though it was barely enforced and everybody sort of knew it, um, many good people in society wouldn't play with it or try it because it was illegal. You had to buy it, perhaps, from a sketchy dealer. Um, there would be, because it's illegal, there would sort of be a reputational hit that you would take if, let's say, your your church friends would know about it. After pot was decriminalized in California, I began having more conversations, even with church people, who began to try it on their own. You know, Maybe they had some chronic pain. Maybe they had some depression. Maybe they just wanted to have a little bit of fun and so they started playing with pot. A number of these people, they didn't tell me, they didn't come to me, this is the life of a pastor, they didn't come to me beforehand and say, Pastor, should I play around with pot? I would have said, no, why do you need to? And I'd say, you know, if there's perhaps, you're looking for some medical benefit, maybe talk to your medical doctor. And, you know, we had we had medical marijuana in California before this. And I would say, talk to your medical doctor and Engage with your doctor on that count with respect to it as a pharmaceutical. But as a recreational drug, I would suggest that you not play with it. Now, again, people can argue, well, alcohol is basically a recreational drug. You don't tell people not to drink. I do tell tell people to not be drunk. Um, but I am not a teetotaler, even though I myself don't drink. So there's a lot going on. So which is better to... Once pot was legalized, it sort of, well, now suddenly anybody can get pot. and There's no longer stigma with respect to pot. And a lot of people for whom when it was illegal, they wouldn't have touched it. Now they touch it. Which is a better world? The world of antithesis where it's illegal, and some people use it certainly. Or the, let's say, the winsome world where, well, okay, try it if you will. It's difficult to make these kinds of evaluations because in my video about same-sex marriage, I noted that people who need the church, when churches are full of people who need the church, who love the church, who are deeply motivated to be a part of the church because they see it as an either coming from an existential crisis or they see it as absolutely necessary in their lives— these are often the people that you need to make strong churches. These are the people who give sacrificially. These are the people who participate sacrificially. These are the people who will go out of their way to serve their neighbor. And there is a strong difference between them and others in society. Gallup did, a, um, did a, wrote a book a number of years called The Saints Among Us, where he goes through that just a small percentage of people outperform others in society with respect to many of these values. So these are the issues at play. And part of the muddiness of, let's say, a natural a natural law posture, first of all, it's very difficult to sort of make really easy, easy comparisons with that in society. Is it better to have a society that is sort of in free fall so that the the saints shine more brightly? Or is it better to have more of a general Christendom where, by virtue of the rule of law and the state's power of the sword, people are compelled to at least do some of the right thing even if they're not motivated to do it wholeheartedly. For years, the motto of Calvin College was a hand with a heart. I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. And in some ways, if you have a general Christendom situation, well, people aren't offering, they're offering their heart begrudgingly because it's what they are compelled to do. And these are difficult tensions to sort of suss out. And I think actually think that you know, I learned some things listening to James about this, but I've talked enough, let's hear him talk some more.
1: Increasingly come to see that the winsome framework has certain limitations and common temptations that have increasingly become evident in the adherence. My core argument has been that this approach inclines the adherence to think through politics through the lens of evangelism. And I think this is naive for
0: at least a couple of reasons. And I think that's a great point Because downstream from Abraham Kuyper, you've got two different spheres and part of, let's say, Calvinists' distinction from, let's say, the Anabaptist tradition is Calvinists, generally speaking, aren't pacifists. Now, if you go back to the Servetus episode where I played some of Tom Holland, Calvin wasn't in charge of the city. He had influence in the city, but you have city council people who are in charge of the city and Calvin is working in the church. This separation of church and state was very much implicit in that. Again, I, I think Jacob is right that you can find the, the roots of separation of church and state in the Old Testament. You have the prophet and the priest and the king and there are three different offices. What he said there about let me let me play it again because I think that's actually a really you know when he said it I thought yeah there's a lot to that there's more to think about there
1: core argument has been that this approach inclines the adherents to think through politics through the lens of evangelism and I think this is naive for at least a couple of reasons it lets the broader culture especially cultural elites who are increasingly opposed to Christianity and natural law set the terms for our engagement this leads Christians to scorn fellow believers, usually to their right. And I'll come back to that in a moment.
0: And, and before we get to that point, again, and I agree with his point here. He's, I, because he's teaching at Redeemer, I suspect that he's basically coming from the same tradition I am. And, and Christians should be involved in politics. Christians should get elected to public office. And Christians should act within the framework of their civil duty to... Um, install, to to act as they believe God calls them to act. I think this is part of a democracy. In a democracy, I get to have political opinions that are informed by my religious opinions. That that seems absolutely basic to the entire process. And that the opinions of some (laughs) outweigh opinions of others. Well, the opinions of our elected officials tend to govern in application The the opinions for all of us. That doesn't mean that Christians will defy the government. Let's say if you're a Christian who is a teetotaler, it doesn't mean you necessarily will vote for the prohibition of alcohol. If you are a Christian who is against abortion, it doesn't mean that you perhaps won't participate in the government, even if the overall government policy permits abortion. There's a ton of nuance in there. And again, I'm not from a political tradition that says Christians shouldn't get elected to office and then go into serving in office with their consciences enacted and enabled and to try to um, help the government bring justice to the country. And of course, their justice will be informed by their ideas of justice. And... This is not just true of the right in terms of Christians politically in America. This is also true of the left. In um, Christian Reformed people all around the United States and Canada, those that have been elected to office vote their consciences. And this to me is non-controversial, especially within a Christian Reformed frame.
1: And when Christians receive consistent, virulent pushback for their views on moral and cultural issues, If they're informed by this model, I think they'll be tempted to doubt their convictions, tempted to think that loving sinners means affirming them in their sins. And that will be more of a focus for my talk this afternoon, but I'm just flagging it here. But also I think approaching a politics and cultural engagement according to what will help or hinder the gospel gospel openness is naive because we actually don't know what will work evangelistically. And even thinking this way, I think, reveals a form of pragmatism underlying this framework. But besides that, we simply don't know what will make people more open to the gospel, especially some people in a a future time. It is quite plausible to imagine that future generations will be more open to the message of the community of persons who opposed the evils of things like abortion and the indoctrination of children into radical gender ideology in the face of severe cultural
0: pressure. I think this is a strong point. I think this is a very strong point. We go, we look back in time and look at the abolitionists and say they are the heroes. Well, You should understand how the abolitionists were seen in 19th century America. They were kind of radicals and considered kooks. But because they stood up in the political sphere rather ardently for the abolition of slavery... In, in, in many ways, they won because the South seceded, and many more Americans were unionists who wanted to see the Union preserved. That was Lincoln's posture. Lincoln was not did not begin the war as an abolitionist. Even the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln did not free the slaves in the border states. Lincoln only freed the slaves in the Confederate states. And he was criticized for that. Um, that's the Emancipation Proclamation. So, you know, this is a really strong point. And again, I am a Kuyperian in the sense that I believe in sphere sovereignty. When I am working and acting in the church, I do so as a Christian minister within this sphere. As a citizen, when I go to vote, I do so as a citizen in that sphere, and I think a, a Christian who is elected to political office needs to serve within that sphere. And the distinction between these spheres, I think, is important. Maybe,
1: maybe not. Who knows? But for instance, it, I think it'll be interesting in the coming years to see where the detransitioners land, where they seek help, guidance, and fellowship, and who they blame as silently complicit. But besides this, an undue certainty about how our political actions will hinder or help openness to the gospel, I just think this is a category error. This, this, is not about, uh, this is not the nature of politics proper. Politics is not about minimizing offense in order to maximize openness to the gospel message. Politics is rather focused on the pursuit of justice and the just ordering of society.
0: And, and again, I think this is a strong point. Let's say, we I have people who work in the political sphere in my church. We are in Sacramento. Um, I certainly want them, and I think everybody can understand this. I certainly want the members of my church that are working in the political sphere to be the kinds of winsome individuals that can um, that when asked, can share why they are made up as they are, but the job of Christians who are working in politics is not to use the mechanisms of government for to promote the church. And now, I, I want to put my cards on the table here because this is all deeply Protestant approaches to church and government. This is separation of church and state. Um. And I I think to the degree that Roman Catholics and perhaps Orthodox agree with this because it's, it's it's the way in which Protestantism has deeply impacted the way that we live. Now, part of the difficulty here is that I think this secular approach to the world is built on Christendom. And the argument that there needs to be agreements about a whole range of things underneath for the system to function, I think that's also true.
1: So, winsome politics is both too certain and confused at the same time. And it also cripples prudential political action. It leads all sorts of to all sorts of false moral equivalencies on issues and strategies, producing an almost crippling inability to recognize and publicly admit when there is a moral asymmetry between contemporary sides and among the issues themselves. Adherents then constantly highlight with equal airtime the flaws in each position and strategy, which then inhibits the capacity to act in accord with proper political prudence. Let me summarize it this way, as I've said, some causes...
0: I, I think what he said there, I think I understand what he's saying, but it was a little murky. Well, let's, let's hear him out.
1: ...are simply more important than others. Some issues are black and white, and some strategies are clearly more in accord with justice. And winsome third-wayism particularly cripples conservative Christian political action, which gets labeled as culture warring, Christian nationalism, politicizing the faith, etc., and for some reason these labels, don't, this doesn't apply to progressive Christians and their political efforts, which gets the, which gets the positive labels like social justice and prophetic witness.
0: Now, I, I completely agree with that point, and it's a point I've made many, many times, that when I look at both sides, I see both sides playing politics. And if you were going to use this label, on one hand, Christian nationalism, which I think has been the pervasive... <laughs> The pervasive ideology behind American politics for over a hundred years. This did not change in the Trump administration. You have to understand the history of American Protestant elites through the country. And even though you find maybe Christians who are on the left politically, who are in the political sphere, they too, I would argue, are pursuing what appears to be a Christian posture. Again, back to the fight with Grand Rapids East with respect to same-sex marriage. I take those Christians at their word that their inclusivist posture is well meant, wholeheartedly, and that they see biblical precedent and rationale for their posture. I believe them completely. I don't think they're lying. I see this. I think they. I, I see them as telling the truth in terms of this is what they believe they are called to do. Yeah, I get that. Now, that there are differences within the Christian church should, of course, come as no surprise to anyone because you have that all the way back to the New Testament period. Christians are always talking about and sometimes fighting about the truth, even standing upon the same attempts to stand on the same foundation. You had that in the Civil War. Uh, Mark Knoll wrote a wonderful book about the two sides and the arguments during the um, the time preceding the Civil War, how they how they fought over slavery. So very much the case. Both sides do it and I think a lot of this labeling um, coming from the left is just plain not true.
1: (laughs) Think of how progressive Christians celebrated student loan debt forgiveness a few weeks ago as an expression of Israel's year of Jubilee. This sure sounds like a form of Christian nationalism to me. Uh, But why do these political positions get a pass from our elites? It's likely because they are much more in step with the status quo, with the established set of values promoted by our contemporary cultural elites. It also is also likely due to the, uh, to the fact that these Christians regularly denounce their fellow Christians to their right, who are more out of step with the cons- contemporary consensus. And, and, well, let's let them talk a little more. Enabling them to enjoy what Carl Truman calls a progressive privilege. They're shielded from the left's attacks because they do this duty of hitting on their Christians to their right.
0: Okay, so that's a rehash of... Okay, and I think he's right. I think he's exactly right. There is, within the dynamics of a subgroup, a self-policing that goes on. So let's take this little corner. Let's take when uh, Jacob behaves poorly. People want to hear me, because I have a position of privilege and status within this little corner, people want to hear me critique or criticize Jacob. People want to hear me, let's say if they're from, let's say, the Protestant side of this, hear me critique or criticize John Verveke or Jonathan Peugeot. People regularly want to hear me critique or criticize Jordan Peterson. I think I do all those things. There is a degree of policing. A lot of what this debate is about is a perceived amount of policing. Fairness. Do they criticize both sides? These kinds of evaluations are always prone to the judgments of perception. And they may be right, they may be wrong, but that—that's you, you can't lose that factor in it. Now, people who come up in this, uh, David French, Tim Keller. I think I think the negative world folks do have a point. Uh, David French was just really hired by the New York Times and a lot of people on Twitter are like see, see. Fair enough. Has David French been sucking up to get into the New York Times? I don't know. I, I tend to think David French is probably telling us what he thinks. I think it's a big deal for him to get to the New York Times because of obviously, obviously the status. And but, but it's interesting because here you sort of have the Protestant-Catholic thing again because is Douthat criticized for going to the New York Times the way David French is? This gets into this interesting dynamic that I, I really want to pursue more that, that comes up, Aaron Wren brings it up, the Catholics operate differently. You know, the Supreme Court is, has for a long time been full of Catholic justices. Fewer and fewer Protestant justices. Something's going on with that, and I by no means know all that's happening or have a sense of why and why not these things are happening. But there are a lot of sort of double standards going on. If if Ross Douthat can be writing at the New York Times, why not? And, and celebrated for it, why not David French? And I think part of it is because in Protestant circles, they, when someone gets to a certain position, even in this little corner I see this dynamic, when someone gets into a certain position, what we really want for them to do is reflect what we would say if we imagined we were there. It's sort of like what I saw happen on let's say, the interview after the Super Bowl. Let's say such and such a quarterback is the MVP of the Super Bowl, and there they're on the stand after the Super Bowl, and a bunch of evangelicals are waiting. Will he please say something about his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Please, please, please. Well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. A lot of people do. A lot of people don't. It's It's this dynamic where, and it's very much part of the internet culture. It's part of the YouTube culture where, we love to see someone on YouTube gain status who is saying the kinds of things that we imagine we would want to say if we were in the places that they are. And that's part of it. So when Tim Keller goes on, you know, Tim Keller gets invited to the news to talk, a whole bunch of lower status evangelicals are like, I want him to say something about abortion. Now... Let's be honest to both sides. If Tim Keller always goes on these news and says, abortion, 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 he's not going to be invited again. And so the sides criticizing David French and Tim Keller, I think have a point because, hey, if you're going to get invited into these upper realms, the assumption is you're going to go easy on things that are sensitive to us. Now, but let's be fair all the way around with that. Let's say you get invited to go to... A Mormon gathering. Are you going to keep talking about polygamy? Are, I mean, we should understand the modulation that we all do. And I go back to my conversation. I always say this name wrongly. Sell me Vosh or Vosh. I don't know. Part of the Winsome approach is to. Use discernment and strategy to try to get somewhere. Now, which is the better approach? I think you should have both of these approaches in your back pocket. And I think almost everyone who is participating in these conversations, in fact, does. Because let's say, let's say, let's say you're going to have a meeting with a state senator because there's a particular political issue that you're passionate about and feel strongly about. Maybe it's the total transgender thing. So you go meet to this go meet the state senator. Maybe you have a difference with the state senator on tax policy, but your real issue is you want to talk to them about the transgender issue. Are you going to barge into their pro office and say, this your tax policy sucks. Or are you going to bar- come into their office and say, you know, act respectfully and say, I'd like to talk to you about the transgender issue. Are you going to keep the, the tax policy back here so you can forefront the transgender issue? Because that's what you really want to talk about. Back to one of the dominant themes of this little corner. the world is too, The world is too complex for us to talk about everything. Hierarchies are essential. You're going to have to make priorities, which means some issues you're going to forefront and some issues you're going to put further back. And a lot of what I see individuals like David Frentz and Tim Keller criticized for is people don't like which issues they're forefronting and which issues they're leaving in the back. And they're looking at them and saying, if I were there, I'd forefront it. Yeah, you probably would. And if you would forefront it, you probably wouldn't be invited there. And so your point about the fact that they are putting these other issues in the back and putting these issues in the front in a a way to sort of coddle and mollify and gain influence, it's a fair point all the way around. But everyone does it. And so then my advice is, Have a conversation about the hierarchy of values that you are bringing to your moments of influence where you can't put the whole thing on the table. You have to hit one thing. Every minister has this with preaching. You open up a text. In almost any given text, there are a range of salient sermonic points, homiletical points, moral points, applications that you can make from a text. You're going to have to choose. As the sermon critic says, the main fault with most sermons is trying to make too many points. Make one point, drive it hard, there's your presentation, there's your thesis, there's your paper, there's your sermon. A lot of this debate is, what should be forefronted? What what is the priority? And, And that's why I don't want to criticize the sort of sussing this out because in many ways it's a conversation about priorities that's what this is to the arguments i've made up to this point so what
1: else would i like to add to my critiques before i get to some of my positive proposals of what's needed well first i'd like to introduce a term that i haven't discussed much yet winsome third ways exhibit an inclination toward i would what i would like to call prodigal politics this is obviously a play on tim keller's prodigal god thesis If you're unfamiliar with that, which I bet very few here are, uh, but I'll just summarize it here. Keller provided a very helpful explanation of the gospel through a creative but faithful reading of the parable of the prodigal son. It's, It's actually a great book, The Prodigal God. He explains that there are two ditches that can lead away from the gospel, each represented by one of the sons in the story. That of the relativist immorality and irreligion represented by the younger son, and that of moralistic religiosity represented by the older brother. And Keller seems often to suggest that our harshest treatment should be toward the older brothers, the legalists, the moralists, religious folk. And this then gets often applied by the acolytes of winsomeness.
0: Okay, let's pause there because there's something to be said about this. Both sons are invited to the feast. The older son does not want to go because he very understandably has a problem with the way that the father invited the younger son back. Now, this gets into my Kenneth Bailey interpretation of Luke 15 that I know is controversial, because every time I bring it up, people don't like it. But I think it's actually validated by the response of the older brother. Because if the older brother had thought that the younger brother had learned his lesson, which Kenneth Bailey basically says he doesn't, or he didn't, if the older brother thought that the younger brother learned his lesson, then maybe the older brother would be um, more ready to come to the feast. Now, this this plays out in politics. And now let's get to Tim Keller's story a little bit. If you know anything about Tim Keller's story, uh, Tim Keller, part of the reason Tim Keller has been able to do what he has done in terms of growing a large church in New York City is in his own story. He is very familiar with, let's say, uh, liberationist narratives in the American implicit civil religion, and as am I. And actually, there's a video out there on YouTube that kind of goes through Tim Keller's story. I think the video is meant to discredit Tim Keller, but as I've said many times, there's a lot of parallels between my story and Tim Keller's story. Tim Keller is a generation older than I am, so his participation in the counterculture, or at least in counterculture light, let's say, is quite a bit different from mine. But um, interest in urban missions, interest in racial reconciliation, we have all of that in common. Um, Doing that from, let's say, a conservative Protestant position, we have that in common. Tim Keller was effective evangelistically because he knew his audience. Now, someone might bring up a question, which is a very interesting one. I think it's one worth talking about. Was Tim Keller effective evangelistically if the Christian commitments that came from cultural elites in New York City didn't yield the kinds of political positions, let's say, against abortion, against same sex marriage, et cetera, et cetera? If those conversions were true, wouldn't the sort of natural law here below positions by these people, aren't those fair to evaluate in terms of trying to evaluate Tim Keller's ministry? That's an interesting question. And it's a question that is a huge question and one that could be talked about for a while. And and it's in many ways sort of implicit in this, because if you look at Tim Keller's "Prodigal God" thesis, and you can find that sermon on on YouTube. I'm sure um, it is. It's a great book. It's a great point, but it's also a book and a point that really sort of is in keeping with the counterculture. The counterculture is already really disposed to enjoy the rebel. This is this is deep in the American civil religious ethos we we americans love the rebel and so the way tim keller tells that story we're cheering for that young rebel to to come back and in fact we don't we don't necessarily as a group esteem the older brother we love the story of the younger brother and so The point that Tim Keller makes there is actually a pretty significant one because Keller's going to want to say that, and this then lines up with his Calvinist theology, that, and you can hear him if you find a Veritas Forum, very popular video on YouTube where he talks about, I don't play Veritas Forums because they always, uh, um, they, they don't like me commenting on their videos. I always get a copyright claim on my videos that I do the very test form but he he's asked about um he's asked, asked about homosexuality and he says what sends you to hell is self righteousness and what Tim Keller did so well and part of the reason that I think he had such an impact is that he was able to tie this to this young restless and reformed movement and how they saw the gospel okay So there's a lot of this package that Tim Keller really put together well. And so I would not be at all surprised to go to politically conservative places and hear basically very similar presentations of the gospel. The gospel became a very specific thing in the young, restless, and reformed movement. And those themes Keller was very was very much able to tie into his missionary approach in New York City and it was quite successful and in fact it was foundational for this whole young restless and reformed movement but there are a lot of issues underneath there that in many ways are sort of coming to light as we continue to sort of work through the implicit differences between let's say the how should i how should we Call them So when you have Catholic and Orthodox traditions that had been in many ways fully wedded to political power and the kind of uneasy wedding that you have in Protestant traditions, I think that's part of the reason why in the UK and in the United States, there's this sort of discomfort with there's this discomfort with full-throated upfront empire. Both the British and eventually the United States have sort of an awkward relationship with empire, and this has led to the style of empire that the United States has used. The United States doesn't conquer Mexico and Canada even though it could easily. The United States could easily run its armies and take over the rest of North America. It doesn't. It conquers in terms of influence. It conquers in terms of finances. And in that way, there's something essentially American that is in alignment with the winsome approach. But there is in America also an, a realization of violence, Nate Heil just sent me this video on Twitter and wow, it was great. And I thought maybe I should just deal with that video, but I didn't really have a frame to deal with that video. But perhaps in this context, we can. Now, I tell you, I started listening to this book, this, this guy, and like I want to read his book because this, this just sounds chock full of sermonic gold. This is Dr. Chris Green talking about his book, All Things Beautiful, and they're going to talk about. Kristen Cobez DuMez, Jesus and John Wayne. Which again, um, if the, if there's if there's someone on the other side of the negative world argument, it's Kristen Kobes Dume
2: Your the, the comment about violence is actually a great segue because I want to talk a little bit about the chapter uh, on westerns that she wrote. Yeah, and so fill us in I mean, you're. It's something that's been written about pretty widely, especially as of late. Yeah. Um, Kristen Dumais just wrote yep. Jesus and John Wayne, yep. um,
3: and which I engage a little bit in here. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I, it, it seems to me I haven't finished her book yet, but it seems to me that what she's arguing is that the, the evangelical perspective is very much that Jesus or that Jesus is a kind of John Wayne for us, mm-hmm. right, Or that we need to turn Jesus into John Wayne, and that's the image that we've created and it's the image that we worship and that we've become addicted to, right? And you have a little bit of a different
3: approach. As I, I mean, you could probably read her book in a couple of different ways because a lot of her book is just kind of reporting on things evangelical leaders have said about masculinity and violence and so on. That's right. So you can read what she's up to in a couple of different ways. But I will say, I think that at least the way her book has been received largely is that evangelicals, at least white evangelicals, are kind of drawn to John Wayne for the same reasons they're drawn to Jesus, and Jesus for the same reasons they're drawn to John Wayne, right? Right. and that they're they're looking for a kind of man who's willing to do violence against bad people in in the name of defending the weak and the vulnerable. You know, it's like it's a kind of that we need strength and to make a show of strength. So I, I think the, and I think that's by and large right. I mean, again, much of the book is just telling us what was said, right? So I mean, it's in that way, not a lot to disagree with, but I do think that the account is more complicated than the book suggests, and definitely more complicated than kind of pop perception of the book suggests. In in, in terms of how Americans and American Christians and American evangelical Christians think about masculinity and violence i think the story is it's a little more complicated yeah. than, again than is usually seen right so so that's one of the directions that you go
2: on your chapter and on westerns is that john wayne isn't jesus and jesus isn't john wayne but we need the john Waynes so that jesus can be who jesus
3: needs to be that's that's how i think that's i think the way the model actually works right that that there's Part of the, and here, for those of you who are interested in, in this, there's a, there's a man named Richard Slotkin, who's a, a scholar, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he wrote a series of gigantic books um, on the myth of redemptive violence. And he kind of traces the history of American storytelling, like w- what stories do Americans tell about themselves, mm-hmm. and makes the case that really these stories are always stories about the frontier, the new, the the savage land that's conquered by what he calls the, the hero or the pioneer hero mm-hmm. who is you know breaking into virgin territory or savage territory and making it safe for people to follow, right?
0: Now, that framing is really close to, I think, how a lot of Americans think about evangelism. These images, these archetypes, these narratives don't just sort of stay in politics. And I think that's part of James Wood's point that there's, we, we've got to keep our eye on our categories, but there is transference underneath in these areas. Yeah.
3: And he, you know, it, again, it's a multi volume series and each book is massive. But his, the, the, the heart of his idea is that Americans believe violence is necessary, that in, for any good to happen, there has to be violence against those who are not good. And for any good that has happened, there has to be a readiness for violence for that good to stay. Mm-hmm. Right? And that this is just like built into the American mentality, right? Like that we we believe violence is good, right? right? Or can be. Not that it always is, but that it can be. And I think we we all sense this and can feel this like at at, at even the most kind of pop culture level possible. You've seen like the bumper stickers that say, only two people have ever died for your freedom, Jesus and the American soldier. Like, like that kind of sentimentality, like that, that's the idea, right? That freedom isn't free. Well, what does it cost? Well, it costs death. Mm-hmm. But not just anyone's death, specifically the death of the soldier, right? The death of the person who's willing to do violence in our name. For the, sake of, for the sake of freedom. And that is, and I, I think that it, it, the, the Western, what I'm arguing in that chapter, which is the chapter on Epiphany, so I don't know if we, you mentioned it briefly, but let me back up to a little bit to say, so the book is arranged around the seasons of the Christian year, starting with Advent, which is the season we're in now, and, and moving all the way to ordinary time. But this chapter, the one that Father Paul has just asked me about, is, about Epiphany, the Feast of Epiphany, which celebrates the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, the moment at which Jesus is kind of revealed to be the savior of all. This is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And the title of the chapter is The Name Above All Names. So this, the idea is how do, we, how do we name Jesus rightly? And, and then I argue that the Western, and this is true of both like our books, like the Louis L'Amour books, but also our movies. John Wayne is the iconic figure here. That those books and movies, those stories are are stories that are trying to name something that's essentially American. And this this goes back even to really before the Western to stories about the pioneers, people like Daniel Boone. And historical figures like Boone and Davy Crockett, but also fictionalized figures like Natty Bumpo, who's a part of the leather-stocking novels, The Last of the Mohicans mythology, right? Like all of those stories are centered around a hero, a hunter hero, or a pioneer hero who is willing to do violence. And Slotkin picks up on this, and I'm sketching some of it in the chapter, that this is almost always a man, like almost always, almost always a man who's an outsider to every community. So, like with the Natty Bumpo character who becomes, like in last of the Mohicans movie, Daniel Day-Lewis plays him. The, he's, he's white, but he lives with the Indians. Right. He speaks their language. Right? They're his brothers. He's blood brothers with them. Right, But when the bad Indians are threatening the good whites... Like, that's where he becomes necessary. Mm-hmm. And that becomes, like, part of the fundamental story that just shows up over and over and over and over again, right? That you've got this outside figure who's incredibly skilled. He's usually not a true believer. Like, one of the things that's fascinating about this is usually this, this hero is not a Christian. And he, he needs not to be a Christian because mm-hmm. he's going to do things for Christians that Christians can't do for themselves. Yeah. Because their faith won't allow it. Uh, you guys remember the John Wayne, um, the man who shot Liberty Valance. So in that movie, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart are the, are the big stars. And Jimmy Stewart plays this kind of man from the East, very cultured man who comes to the West to kind of bring law and order without violence to this town. And there's an outlaw there who's also played by a super famous actor. His name's slipping in my mind right now. But the, have any of you seen this? It's an old movie. You should definitely watch it. I'm going to spoil it for you, though. So get ready. The, <laughs> it's the, been out long enough. Been, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you not You don't, Yeah, I'm not going to spare you the spoiling. But it it comes down to he's just going. To, the Jimmy Stewart's character is just going to have to have the shootout with the outlaw, even though he doesn't want to. Lee Marvin. Lee, yes, thank you very much. He's going to have to. I knew it was somebody famous, I, and I couldn't think of who it is. It's it's terrific though, uh, movie, and. So, but in, in the, the, the decisive moment, John Wayne, who's the good bad guy, or the bad good guy, whichever way you want to put it, actually does the shooting from hiding. Right? So that what people perceive, the public view, is that the good marshal did what had to be done, even though he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to commit violence, but he did to save us from the bad guy. But what was really happening behind the scenes, right? Is that the bad good guy or the good bad guy was doing the dirty work? Right. Mm-hmm. So jump forward to the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Right. You get that exact same story: the Dark Knight, right, of Batman, who has to do in the dark what nobody wants done. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants it done, but it has to be done. Yeah. Right. And and so he's he's the hero. Right. And there's that line in which uh, the commissioner says at the end of the movie. Right. He's the hero, not the hero we deserve, but he's the hero that we need. Yeah. Right. We need somebody who will do violence in our name, but not make us accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Right. So the what what this part of what this story means is that good bad guy or bad good guy always has to end up in exile. Right. So like Natty Bumpo, the character in the Leatherstocking novels, he dies alone without children and is only honored by the natives. Like the white people that he rescues, they're done with him. He's done his work, right? He's, he's protected them. And now he goes off into oblivion. John Wayne in The Searchers, which I think is kind of the great Western movie around these themes anyway. Um, again, if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it. But John Wayne plays a former Confederate officer. After the Civil War, he's kind of famously known for his hatred for native peoples and for, for the Indians, and then this young girl gets kidnapped, and he gets brought in to rescue her. And part of the drama of the movie is, will he actually rescue her, or will he just kill her too? Mm-hmm. Right? Because the thing he says he hates more than even the Reds are the people who are white and then turn. Mm-hmm. Right? Like they're, they're rejecting their own whiteness, and he hates them for it. But he does, in the end, he does the right thing and doesn't kill her. He brings her back to the family. But in this incredibly iconic scene, one of the most famous scenes in American movie history, at the very end of the movie, he brings her home, her and her boyfriend, who's going to marry her, and they go up the steps into that ranch house, back to the family. And the camera now is inside, looking out through the door, the open door. And behind John Wayne, you can see, like, the prairie like the, the desert. And he walks up the steps and moves toward the door and then stops. Right, So everybody else is in the house and the camera angle is from in the house. So you and I are in the house too, right? We're looking out with everybody else in the house rejoicing because the rescue has happened. Salvation has come. But we're looking out on the John Wayne who did all of that for us, but he can't come in. And then he turns and walks away, right? And, the, and that door shuts behind him. And that... That image like, shows up again, and again, and again, and again. Right? Um, before the, the latest group of Star Wars movies came out, like the, I, I was teaching a class on film and talking about this theme, and I told them that that has to happen to Luke Skywalker next. Like he has to become, he has to get exiled. Like, because in American storytelling, in order to be a hero, you have to do things that are bad.
0: Yeah. But
3: you have to pay for that bad by living and dying alone
0: after that, right? And so- Trump, there's been endless hand-wringing on one side of the evangelical aisle about well th- th- your fascination with Trump. But if you understand this about American hero storytelling, Trump fits that bill perfectly. Trump will do things. Trump gets elected by evangelicals to do things that evangelicals don't want to do. It fits the narrative perfectly. And now he's going to be exiled. It's that's, that's. and and I think um when when you go back then to this conversation, okay. So a lot of well let, let's let him talk a little bit more.
1: To the realm of politics and cultural engagement as necessitating harshest criticism directed towards those on the right. So, Winsome Third Way is, as it's uh, well documented by this point, punch right and coddle left. I'll come back to that tonight, later this afternoon about why I think this is foolish in our context, but I just wanted to introduce that here.
0: And, and I would imagine that in some ways, both sides are working this narrative. You know, the, the the right in that sense sort of has a direct approach and Trump fits then into it because Trump is an outsider. Norman Vincent Peel. Trump's not an evangelical. You know, two Corinthians, Trump's not an evangelical. He doesn't know the language. Grab women by their, you know, Trump's not an evangelical, but there's the sense that Times are difficult. We need the good, bad man. We need the bad, good man to come in and do what we can't do. And that makes perfect sense of the embrace of Trump by moralistic, conservative evangelicals. I mean, did, did Trump pay for abortions from how many of his girlfriends? We don't know. You know, it just went through Herschel Walker. Same thing. So, but I think the left does it too. And I think the left likes keeping the right around because the left can be talk all pacifist and stuff. But then when, you know, Russia invades Ukraine, bang, you know, (laughs) we're really worried. Now, don't forget, it was a Republican that made the comment about the military industrial complex. It was Eisenhower. But, you know, oh, this is this is, you know, fund the Ukrainians, give them everything they need. This dynamic comes into play, and I think this dynamic has a lot to do with Tim Keller gets up there and gets invited to the news, and in a sense, we want him to be Trump. We want him to turn the tables. And and I think this is part of the fascination with Jordan Peterson, too, because... Peterson's an outsider for evangelical Christians. He's an outsider for Roman Catholics. He's an outsider for Orthodox. But he then goes on to the stage and does things that, you know, the Catholics and the Evangelicals and the Orthodox can't do. He turns the table on Kathy Newman. So uh, there's a ton going on with this.
1: It's related to the second theme I want to add before getting to my proposals. That is, how should we should think about politics in a post-Christian context. This is somewhat different than a Christian context, which could refer to such contexts that go under the label Christendom. Or also, it's also different from pre-Christian contexts. A post-Christian context is unique from a pre-Christian one in at least two relevant ways for our discussion this morning. First, in a post-Christian context, there's a residual memory of Christian political and cultural dominance. Uh, and, and in such a culture, it, it feels like they have left Christianity behind and no longer has need for it any longer. And also there's the memory of the memory of Christian cultural dominance leads to a strong resistance then to any efforts to restore the the moral norms in the social order. Second, however, while it is true that Christians are no longer in a culture that generally endorses vaguely Christian norms or the Tao, as we talked about earlier, neither are we in in this situation. See,
0: and you've got you've got the you've got the problem of selection there, because I I think part of where I differ from this critique is. This post-Christian left continues to pursue, even as it undermines it. Sometimes continues to pursue values it got from Christendom and sort of, you know, laundered it. Oh, these aren't Christian values. My foot, they're not. They're they're Christian all the way through. Again, listen to Peugeot and um, and Luke Burgess. Listen to that conversation. They're they're Christian all the way through. The the culture war is a Christian civil war. It always has been,
1: of being the moral majority, but also we're not um, politically powerless. So that's what's different about our context, which is interesting to think about. We need to think through the appropriate use of political power in this context. We still have a certain responsibility with this power that we can't just abdicate. We are in a later stage in the progression to a fully post-Christian society, but we're not out of the game yet. And that's why I think and I'll let Aaron talk about this, this this part a little bit more later.
0: Now, now this, what is what do we mean by we say that this is a pro post Christian society when the progressivists in many ways are the heirs of the 19th century post millennials. They are pursuing their vision, as he pointed out earlier, they are pursuing their vision of a Christian nation. They are, but they're not using the label Christian. It has been laundered in a sense by you know, the Roosevelt administration, and it has been laundered and universalized. Now to be a good person is to act in Christ-likeness, even if you never use his name. So, but it's, it's a selective element of Christ because you have your sexual liberationism while at the same time you have your sacrificial George Bailey never thinks about himself. And, there are all kinds of inconsistent tensions in these, in, in these elements here, and I think part of what gets lost is, is, is how much of that there is. Later, I think, both
1: populism and culture war pacifism, or what uh, Joe talked about last night, or Aaron talked about last night as being studiously apolitical, are the wrong approaches. I'll just briefly mention this here. I think populism makes more sense when you are completely barred from political power, or you have a broad cultural census behind you that's in opposition to a decadent and corrupt elite class. But it makes a little bit less sense when you have some access to power, but not broad cultural support. Culture war pacifism is better explained uh, in conversation with my positive proposal. We need to retrieve some version of Christian realism in our domestic politics, in our cultural battles. Culture war quietism, or and political pietism which is something i'll discuss in a moment are what winsome politics pushes on christian conservatives we are told we can't impose our values we can't secure the kingdom of god through political powers therefore we should just seek to live out our values in our private enclaves we should just leave others alone
0: an example now part of that is of course an anabaptist strategy and and that's part of what they point out here Part of what we're difficult, part of what the difficulty we have with this is that you've got Anabaptism and your Calvinism and Calvinism and your Anabaptism, and you've got Roman Catholicism underneath a lot of it, and the Catholics are beating the Protestants in a Protestant world at what had been a Protestant game. There's a ton going on here, and I think trying to I I don't know that we can talk our way out of this as much as we will watch people act and be able to identify what we think and see is right and then evaluate it. This gets back to Jordan Peterson's first biblical series. We act first and look and um, try to represent in language and try to conceptualize second. I've got to bring this to a close. It's getting late. It's a Friday night. I've got to get home. So, yeah, there's plenty of this to be seen. He's got his positive proposals. And I, I want to listen to the second half of this. I remember the first couple of times I listened to it, I was, I, I preferred the first part to the second part. I don't remember exactly why. The video I really want to get to is Aaron Wren's um, second talk which I think is just chuck full of a lot of interesting things so but but I think juxtaposing this vision of the western with this talk really makes it interesting so that's enough for now leave a comment sorry I can't end it here I was wrapping up I was putting the video together I was doing all that stuff and I thought I, I'll listen to the rest of this while i clean up around the office before I go home and then he said something said no this I've got to include this because it's absolutely essential to the entire take and I've been struggling to kind of get my head around where I'm at with respect to the positive neutral negative and the the limitations of that and you could see in the same-sex marriage video how those those things get crossed in those limitations and where in in a sense the in the in the negative world the church that uses positive world missional strategies withers because in that in that negative world in a sense you need much more starkly antithetical much more starkly antithetical missional tools. One, one of the things that I realized you know, fairly quickly in ministry, that there are different kinds of negative worlds. So I've done much of my ministry in my life in communities that have a high degree of brokenness in some aspects. When I would minister to, let's say, someone who grew up gangbanging, did some time, Usually the kind of preachers that would save their souls and get them into church were highly antithetical preachers, bright lines, black and white, um, do not drink, Um, do not do these things you used to do, turn your life around. There'd be other much grayer lines, but there'd be a lot of those kinds of issues. It's a different kind of negative world. It's a world of black and white. It's a world of saved and damned. It's a world of heaven and hell. And then there's all these sort of middle-class Christendom, post-Christendom worlds where, you know, families are together. People are doing their jobs. Maybe they're drinking behind closed doors. Maybe there's adultery. Um, Maybe there's other stuff going on. But for the most part, it's keeping up appearances. Well, often then you'd have sort of a positive world strategy. Christian-informed churches that have been flourishing in the last 20 years have been antithetical churches against the prevailing culture, but deeply ensconced in a community that was in many ways in alignment with them. So let's say Republican voting churches in Ripon, California. There was a... Christian Reformed Church in an area, a place in the Bay Area, and I was talking to the pastor, and he was complaining how the PCA Church was just basically, you know, going gangbusters, and they couldn't get anything going. Well, the Christian Reformed Church was very was wasn't very antithetical to the prevailing culture, not in the way that the Pro, the Presbyterian Church in America Church, which was much more young, restless, and Reformed, was. You know, Tim Keller doing well in New York City when it's antithetical to the negative culture, uh, City Church before it flipped on on same-sex marriage doing well in San Francisco until it sort of adopted a certain alignment with the rest of the culture, which in some ways should make their ministry easier because now they don't have this issue about same-sex marriage and same-sex activity as sort of a barrier between them and the rest of the community, but then they find that they lose all that antithetical power. So let's, let's hear more of this video because I think it's enlightening and I, I still haven't sort of put together all the ways that it is. Uh,
3: I, I was teaching a class on film and talking about this theme, and I told them that that has to happen to Luke Skywalker next like he mm-hmm. has to become he has to get exiled like because in American storytelling, in order to be a hero, you have to do things that are bad, yeah. but you have to pay for that bad by living and dying alone after that right and so we I could go on forever about this so you 're going to have to stop me, but I think that the what it comes down to is it's kind of been drilled into us that we need Jesus for some things and John Wayne for other things, Mm -hmm. right? We need Jesus to save our souls. There it is right there. He's gonna say it perfectly right now. ...souls and John Wayne to save our bodies, right? We need Jesus to save our souls and John Wayne to save our bodies, Mm -hmm. right? We need Jesus to make sure we go to heaven when we die and not hell, and we need John Wayne to make sure that our kids have a, a future of freedom and not communism, right? We, we need to make sure, or whatever the, whatever the enemy is at the time, we need Jesus there to forgive us for using John Wayne, but we need John Wayne there when we can turn away from Jesus to say,
0: okay, you're going to have to do this. Yeah. Right? Like, we, we don't want to do this, but it has to be done. Right? And- That's Trump. Again, the, the dynamic with conservative evangelists and Trump, there it is.
3: That, so that there's this kind of fundamental conflictedness in us about it. And what it, what it comes down to then is we, we want to believe that Jesus is always there to forgive the sin of letting John Wayne do that in our name. Now John Wayne himself cannot be forgiven. Right. Like that's part of the story, is that, that the person who does that does not get reconciled back to the community. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a scapegoat. Yeah, exactly. They, he, that's precisely right. right. So Jesus is, if you put it in those terms, John Wayne is the scapegoat and Jesus is the lamb. Mm-hmm. And we think we need both. Yeah. Right? We need the John Wayne figure who will do the stuff that Jesus would never do. Or if Jesus does it, he does a mile, you know, Jesus may drive people out of the temple, but he doesn't you know, scalp them when he's done, right? But we do need someone to scalp some people or it's just gonna get worse and worse, right? So we, we need a scapegoat and a lamb. And we, in part, we need the lamb because of how bad we feel about scapegoating, yeah. right? And so Jesus then becomes a way of redeeming us from that. And yeah. yeah, so could go on forever. What, the way I end the chapter though is by trying to show how the story might work differently. Like what what are other stories that don't assume that? That don't that don't assume that's the way in which justice gets done in the world? Like what are those stories look and sound like?
2: Yeah. Because I mean ultimately those stories start to shape our imaginations. And that's yeah. how we actually live in the world. Right? So I mean this. <laughs> Talking about westerns, this doesn't just live in our film, right? We yep. talk about things like capital punishment, yep. talk about things like bombing civilians with drones halfway around the world. And oftentimes, the response from the Christian community is like, has to be done. Um, and so, I mean, these, these narratives, these stories, they don't just live.
0: Boy, this just brings in so many different thoughts. Yeah, this is it's a great, great thing to ponder here. And I, I have to watch the rest of this conversation. I haven't had a chance to see it, but Nate Nate sent it to me and says, you'll, you'll like this. And uh, uh, Nate's a pretty smart guy and uh, he's listened to enough of me. And uh, yeah, Nate is right. And I think this really helps inform the dynamics that we see going on in the winsome versus antithetical war. And even in the evangelicalism which is a union of the various different protestant traditions so in evangelicalism and in protestantism you have the you have the Anabaptist wing together with the Calvinists and so the Calvinists are going to go join the army and the Calvinists are going to run for office and the Calvinists are going to do all of this and the Anabaptists are going to uh probably be quite glad that they are no longer persecuted by Calvinists Lutherans Catholics and in fact, um, can live in a country that is uh, run by Calvinist Lutherans and Catholics and people who are secular and um, don't understand quite how Christian that they are in terms of how they've been formed intergenerationally. Anyway, so had to include this. I got to watch the rest of this video, but um, I'll have the links here so you can keep on watching them.